From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up. Let's be clear what H.R. 51 is all about. It's about Democrats adding two new progressive U.S. senators to push a radical agenda championed by the squad to reshape America into the socialist utopia they always talk about. That was Kentucky Congressman James Comer on the House floor earlier today as the House voted 216 to 208 to grant statehood to the District of Columbia. What is really behind this effort, and is it even constitutional? Congressman Comer joins us later. And... Yet the most resolve, the most strength that this administration has shown on the border has been their commitment to their talking points, their refusal to call the crisis a crisis. That's Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor earlier this week. Joining me in just a moment to talk about the crisis on the border is Arkansas Senator John Bozeman. I'll also ask Senator Bozeman about a bill he has introduced to protect police officers from the increased violence targeting the law enforcement community. Also, while all kinds of bad and crazy measures are being pushed here in Washington, D.C., there is actually a lot of good legislation moving through the states. There's a question here. What can you do to help? Well, we're going to answer that question a little later when Kana Gonzalez joins me. He's our director of state and local affairs, and he's here with answers. Also, this is now going to become a public health problem. White evangelical resistance is now an obstacle for the New York Times to the vaccination effort. That's Joy Reid on MSNBC shaming evangelicals for not getting the coronavirus vaccine. I'm going to take a shot at that a little later here on Washington Watch. You don't want to miss it. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on the free speech platform of Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. All right, law enforcement community, uh, law enforcement officers, rather, are in the crosshairs of the radical left, and all signs are suggesting that the anti-police push we've seen so far is just the beginning. Making news today is a since-deleted tweet by professional basketball player LeBron James, who yesterday posted a picture of a police officer with the caption, Your Next Hashtag Accountability. The officer he called out was one who fatally shot a black teen, who charged at another young woman with a knife in Columbus, Ohio, on Tuesday. In this increasingly anti-police climate, Republican senators are making an effort to protect the many good men and women in law enforcement serving across the nation from being targeted with violence as they perform their essential duties. With me now to talk about the Protect and Serve Act that he recently reintroduced is U.S. Senator John Bozeman from Arkansas. Senator, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me as always, Tony. And we uh, teamed up with Senator uh, Tillis and Cotton to try and move this legislation forward. And what it has to do with is targeting policemen. I, I was looking at the statistics, 300 shot in the line of duty last year, 47 killed. We've already had uh, 14 officers uh, actually um uh, have died in the line of duty this year. So I had forgotten, Tony, you you know, you've done a lot of things and served your country in many different ways. I'd forgotten that you were on the police force for many, many years. And again, thank you for your service in that regard. Well, thank you, Senator. Those statistics that you just put out there, you know, I must have missed it, but I've not heard the media talking about that. 
No, you're exactly right. The good news, though, is that, you know, I'm out about Arkansas and throughout the country. And despite what the rhetoric that we hear on uh, television and this and that, there is tremendous support for our law enforcement community. So this is all about those that target policemen uh, trying to make that a federal crime and uh, bring all of the, the federal wherewithal as far as going after people that, uh, you know, actually do this, bringing in the, the uh, tremendous force of the Justice Department and all they've got to do to, to get after those that would do these things. Yeah, uh, needed now more than ever. I mean, obviously, Very we've much. talked about this on the program. In every profession, you have individuals who do not meet the standards and do not act and uh, perform according to the established guidelines. Those individuals need to be dealt with. Uh, and I think we saw yesterday that that does happen. Our system works. Uh, but we cannot uh, destroy an entire element of our society that makes law and order work. And that's exactly what we see unfolding. Uh, you're exactly right. And, and the good news is, is that the uh, law enforcement does have tremendous support from those that are, you know, out and about uh, in the country. We always remember that the, the officers are the ones that are running to the danger right. while the rest of us are getting out of the way. Uh, we take that for granted. We we take for for granted the great work that they do. And so this is just another effort for us to be supportive and to really use the might of the federal government uh, to help protect our officers that are out the field. Well, Senator, I want to commend you for doing this in the present environment because too many people want to shrink back from the controversy. And although those they're going to be, you know, take shots at you for doing this, but uh, we we need to stand with our law enforcement community, those who do protect and serve, uh, they are vital to law and order in our country. I want to transition uh, to another topic, Senator, because earlier today, Senate Republicans unveiled a $568 billion infrastructure proposal intended to be a counteroffer to President Biden's $2.3 trillion American jobs plan. What can you tell us about it? Well, uh, Republicans and, and in the past, Democrats also have been interested in infrastructure, uh, making it such that we start repairing the, the, the nation's infrastructure. I think we would all agree that our roads and railroads, runways, uh, broadband, all of those things need work. And you could argue that the reason that we're the great uh, powerhouse that we are economically is our transportation system uh, that was started uh, really in, in the way that we have it now in a modern way through the Eisenhower administration building the interstate. So we need to protect that. We need to, to strengthen our infrastructure. So this was just a good faith effort to say, hey, let's work on these things. Yeah, the but, problem is, as you know, the Democrats would like to do all kinds of stuff. And I, I just don't see them agreeing in the sense what they want to do is combine infrastructure with a bunch of Everything that you can imagine, you know, another trillion dollars worth of stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with right. infrastructure. They use the infrastructure as the sweetener to try and get votes for the entire package. You know, what's and interesting in that package, tax increases and the whole bit. What's very interesting about the infrastructure, and you go back to the Eisenhower 
uh, interstate system, which was designed after World War II because of the need for national security. Because from Europe, where they tried to move around military equipment and assets, it was almost impossible. So they realized, look, we need to have a better system here to move our military assets around. So the whole design was actually not for the economy. It was not. It was for a vital. Uh, responsibility that our federal government has. The total opposite of what we see in the president's plan that he's putting forth for $2.3 trillion. No, you're exactly right. And, and certainly the, you know, things are, are going to be uh, done at the expense, I think, of our military with the president. It'll be interesting to see as we get the, you know, the, the final budget and exactly what they're trying to do. But but this is just, uh, I think it's just talking, you know, we'd like, uh, we'd like, you know, Democrats are basically saying we'd like to be bipartisan. We want to work on this. Uh, I know as they brought this plan forward that already you've had several Democrats saying, no, this is small ball. We've got to go much, much greater. Uh, in the other plan, the plan that was the infrastructure plan that they changed to the jobs plan because they were trying to make the argument that they care and, things like that was actually infrastructure. Uh, they shifted out of that. But you had more you had more dollars dedicated to electric vehicles than roads, railroads, and runways and ports. Much, much more money. Well, so, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think they're justified in calling the earlier version an infrastructure bill because they're throwing the next generation under the bus. Uh, with the cost <laughs> like of this. I mean, it is uh, it, it, it's irresponsible. Um, but uh, I want to go to something else about irresponsibility. I want to play another clip, a little uh, of what uh, the, the Republican Republican leader had to say about the crisis on the border. This past weekend, the president of the United States himself slipped up and used that forbidden word. But get this, he was then overruled by his own staff. Yesterday, his press secretary said President Biden actually didn't intend to describe the situation as a crisis. Fascinating. Is it a crisis on our southern border? No, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, not last Congress, but the Congress before that, I was the chair of the Homeland Security uh, Appropriations Subcommittee, which funds the border guard, ICE, all of those things. I spent a lot of time on the border. Our border guards are wonderful. One Border Patrol are wonderful people that are doing such a great job. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so compassionate and, and trying to do all they can. They are getting uh, just besieged. And, and I think that's a correct word to say that this isn't a crisis. It's so hypocritical. Uh, when I was, you know, having to deal on a weekly basis uh, regarding the border, uh, that was considered a crisis at that point. And, and now it's, it's, you know, it's beyond, uh, it's beyond imagination. 172,000, uh, last month, 18,880, 890, 890, uh, unaccompanied adults. Kids are showing up. They'll, they'll put a, uh, a, just a, a, a postcard or something taped to their chest that has a number and a relative, supposed relative, and just dropped off. Uh, the only one, the border is secure. It's secure in the sense that the cartels know everybody that's crossing, and they're getting a cut out of everyone that, that crosses. Uh, they're enriching themselves, um, but it is truly a, a huge, huge, huge problem. 
The other thing was when I was dealing with it, you know, three or four years ago, the uh, backlog of trying to adjudicate all of these people was about 550,000 people. We thought that that was unimaginably large, truly a crisis. Now it's swelled up to, I think, a million three or a million four, something like that. So however you measure it, and we do need to measure things, uh, there's no there's no measurement that doesn't indicate that what's going on down there is is truly a, a crisis in every sense. It's a crisis for the border card that are working so, so very hard, too hard. It's a crisis uh, for the NGOs that are trying hard to uh, to manage the situation. And then truly the, the people that uh, are being preyed upon. The list just goes on and on. Right. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it is a crisis, no doubt about it. Senator Bozeman, no thanks so much for joining us. As always, great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on the program today. Well, thank you for having us. And again, a special thanks for your service uh, in other ways as a police officer. We appreciate right. it. Thank you, Senator. Appreciate that. Thank thanks you. for sticking up for those that wear the badge. And, and by the way, on uh, a report I got today in talking to some folks in the, the federal government. The uh, you know, they're not wanting to admit that this is a crisis, but now Department of Homeland Security is pulling individuals from other agencies, asking for volunteers that will go to the border that will kind of babysit, chaperone these unaccompanied minors that are coming across the border. I mean, they're asking from every agency. It's it's what let's watch this as it unfolds. All right. When we come back, D.C. statehood, what does it mean? Well, that was debated, and the measure passed on the floor of the House today. It now goes to the Senate. We'll be joined by Kentucky Congressman James Comer on the other side of the break. Don't go away. A lot more Washington Watch still to come. What is Roe v. Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org slash explainer. That's frc.org slash explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. 
We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us today. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, earlier today, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 216 to 208 to pass a bill that would make Washington, D.C., the 51st state in America. The party line vote followed some heated debates on the House floor that included an accusation that Republican opposition was, you guessed it, laced with racism or racist trash. Joining me to talk about the bill in today's D.C. statehood debate is Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, the ranking member on the House Oversight Committee and the floor manager for today's House debate. Representative Comer, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to be back. All right. Your remarks on the floor today, you jumped right into what this bill is about, H.R. 51. Uh, Let's start off with that. What is this about? It's about one thing. It's about creating two new U.S. Senate seats for the Democratic Party, two seats that will allow the House House Democrats to pass their liberal, radical, socialist agenda. I mean, this is more of the power grab. Uh, that they it's have all, been pursuing since the election. That's exactly right. You just look in the last week. Uh, they passed D.C. statehood out of the House. They filed a bill to stack the Supreme Court. You know, they're trying to federalize our elections. Uh, everything that's coming out of the U.S. House of Representatives now is being passed on a party line vote. And it's the most liberal, radical agenda that I've seen in my lifetime. So, Congressman Comer, let me ask you this question. Is H.R. 51 even constitutional? No, it's not. Uh, The founding fathers were very clear that they wanted the capital city independent of any state. There are many references to the capital city in the U.S. Constitution. No other state that was formed was ever mentioned in the Constitution previously. And the big reason it's not constitutional is the 23rd Amendment. The 23rd Amendment grants Washington, D.C., three three electoral college votes. So if H.R. 51 passes the Senate and is signed into law by President Biden, 
Washington, D.C. would have six electoral college votes because H.R. 51 still includes the Capitol enclave because it's been referenced in the Constitution so many times. They have to have something about the U.S. Capitol independent of anything. So they they shrank Washington, D.C. to what they call the Capitol enclave, which includes the, the National Mall, the U.S. Capitol, some of the monuments, and then the White House. The only resident in America that would live in the Capitol enclave would be the first family. So the new Washington, D.C. state would get three new electoral college votes by virtue of it being a state. And then the capital city, the old Washington, D.C., would have three electoral college votes. So that would mean that Hunter Biden, Jill Biden, and Joe Biden would have an electoral college vote. It's ridiculous. It'll never hold up in court. But yet the Democrats are so desperate to do anything to try to pass their liberal socialist agenda. It'd probably be just another one of those blue states with their handout, because if you look at the financial support, a lot of that comes from the federal government. They actually I mean, they they cover a lot of what takes place in the infrastructure in the city. They do. And the city doesn't pay for its uh, incarcerated population. They have between six thousand and eight thousand incarcerated people. Well, that, you, that you know, your colleagues yeah. are going to do away with that. We're not going to be incarcerating people anymore. Well, they've, they've made a big dent on the incarcerated population. It's funny how uh, crime goes up when you let uh, prisoners out of jail. It's amazing but how that works. That's another story. Yeah, that's another story. But another thing, what bankrupts a lot of states like my home state of Kentucky and uh, Illinois is the unfunded pension liability. Congress picked up the tab a long time ago for the pension liability for the city workers of Washington, D.C. So they would become state workers. Is Washington going to stop paying for that? Well, they, is that are, a part of the they, deal? Yeah. Is that a part of the well, deal? That you know, they, they don't want to answer that. They said, yeah, they said they'd take care. They'd discuss that later on. Just like the 23rd Amendment, Jamie Raskin said when I brought up the 23rd Amendment during the committee markup, he said, yeah, that, you know, we'll have to obviously do away with the 23rd Amendment because the, uh, you know, we can't have six electoral college votes in Washington, D.C. They would at least agree with that. He said, we'll do that after the, after the bill is passed. Well, I don't trust them to do that after the bill is passed. There's already a precedent for how you undo a constitutional amendment, and that was prohibition. When prohibition was uh, uh, put into the Constitution and then Congress decided to uh, end prohibition, what did they do? They had to pass another constitutional amendment to end prohibition. So the same thing would have to happen with the 23rd Amendment. But you know what? Americans won't go for that. Right. Right. There's no support for D.C., and it's just uh, it, it's just going to add uncertainty to the next election. If this became a state before the next election and those three electoral college votes, extra electoral college votes through the 23rd Amendment are still lingering out there, you think the Democrats won't use those yeah. extra three electoral college votes if they need them? Of course yeah, they will. I, I'm certain that this would not be on the top of their list if D.C. were a Republican uh, area. Uh, there's no question. I mentioned about that. that on the House floor. That I, I said, I wonder if you all would have the same passion to make Washington D.C. a state if it were 90 percent Republican instead of 90 percent Democrat. Yeah, uh, then yeah, I know the answer to that. Hey, very quickly, we've just got about a minute left. What's your response to the accusation that Republicans oppose D.C. statehood for uh, for, for the reason of racism? I am so sick and tired of being called. A racist, 
uh, being insinuated that my opposition to their radical socialist agenda is because I'm a racist or a white supremacist. That, that's the card they play every time. Yeah. But the funny thing is, Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, their leader, he voted against D.C. statehood in 1993. So was he a racist then? And he's, you know, changed his uh, ideology since then? I don't think so. This is just another card they play to try to pass their radical agenda. You know what? And I think Americans are getting tired of them playing that card on everything because it's a discussion stopper. You play that card and nothing yeah. else can be said. Exactly. And, you know, they, they play it when they need to. Uh, if, if one of them says something offensive then, and uh, a Republican calls them out, then, then we're a racist, yeah. you know, and yeah. it, it's just not it's not good government. It's it's something that, as you said, I think the majority of Americans are sick and tired of. Well, Congressman Comer, thanks so much for joining us today and for uh, for fighting for constitutional government in our country. We'll keep doing it. All right. Good to talk with you. Folks, don't go away. On the other side of the break, we're going to come back with uh, Kena Gonzalez here at the Family Research Council. We're going to be looking at some of the good news about what's happening in states across America because of your involvement. That's next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. We're coming right back after these messages. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on the free speech platform of Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. Let me encourage you, uh, for those that would like to join our two-year journey through the Bible, 
most mornings, Monday through Thursday anyway, I do a, a 10, 12-minute uh, Bible study on Facebook. You can find me at Tony Perkins on Facebook. You can join us every morning around, around 8 o'clock Eastern Time. All right, Democrats, as we were just talking about, doing everything they can here in D.C. to gain more power to take this moment that they have to seize control over everything they possibly can. And there's there's pushback that's happening. Now, we may not see it on the national stage, and certainly the national media doesn't want to talk about this because it doesn't work with their narrative. But the vast majority of states, so the, the, the majority of states, are controlled by Republicans, uh, and in many of them conservative Republicans, who are pushing legislation and passing legislation that runs counter to what we see happening in Washington, D.C., especially on the area of election reform. Uh, Forty-seven states have introduced measures, over 360 measures. Some of them have already been signed into law, like Georgia's, which you've talked about a lot. Uh, so some good things happening, but also on the issue of uh, the sanctity of human life, uh, the, the reality of the biological sexes, something that has escaped this city that's become, I mean, just crazy. Well, joining me now with more detail, Kena Gonzalez, FRC's Director of State and Local Affairs. Kena, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tony. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of these highlights of what's happening in states across the country. Oh, there is so much going on, Tony, and you really hit the broad brushstroke. Uh, for 10 years now, Republicans have held super majorities in terms of the states that they control, in terms of the state legislatures and the state capitals that they control. It seems that when people vote uh, for things close to home, they vote for Republicans, and Republicans have really delivered on the issues that American families care about. Well, we've talked about this just a week or so ago about the SAFE Act, uh, Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act in Arkansas. Governor vetoed it. Legislature overrode it. That's a huge victory. It is. Uh, the legislature overrode it uh, by something like 97 to 35. Huge victory. First law of its kind in the country, again, protecting minors from gender transition procedures that might be done to them until they're adults and giving them the right to sue if they've been permanently sterilized or disfigured by these procedures. Arkansas is not the only state that has taken this up. Nineteen other states are taking a look at this. That's why Arkansas was so important. Arkansas is the first out of the gate, but by no means the last. This has really been building since the story broke. I think it was in 2016, the James Younger case, the tragic case where a little seven-year-old boy's father and mother who are divorced disagreed over whether he identified as a boy or a girl. And apparently he had been telling his father, I'm a boy, just like all the other seven-year-old boys in his class. But his mother thought he needed to transition to female. And that idea that a seven-year-old would be pressured to make a decision between mom and dad and whether to be a boy or a girl is just unthinkable for most parents like myself. But that really kicked this off, Tony. These bills have uh, have only grown since 2016, 2017, 2018, we saw seven or eight states each year that introduced these bills for a total of around 15. Uh, but in the last two years, it's been 19 bills in, uh, in 2020. And in 2021, we have 19 states so far, including Arkansas. It's really exciting. And it does not look like it's peaked yet because there are sports bills that are that are moving even fast at a faster pace pardon the pun, uh, that would address this issue of biological males participating in female sports. Yes, Tony, as a biological male, sometimes it's hard to keep up um, with all that's happening in the States. It's really exciting. 
it's also sort of a reflection of where we are as a society and where our, our national politics have gone recently, though, that we're legislating at the state level, really being forced to legislate on common sense issues that just a few years ago we would not have thought we would have to uh, have to pass laws to protect women's sports from biological males from entering and really dominating those sports and taking scholarships and other opportunities away from young women. And, of course, there's a, there's a lot more Born Alive Infant Protection Act, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, Prenatal Non-Discrimination Acts, a lot of good stuff happening. Yes, there's so much happening in the states. Uh, the Born Alive Act is an excellent example. All year last year, and hopefully again this year again, Republicans in the House of Representatives have called for a federal Born Alive Infant Protection Act that would protect infants who are born alive after a botched abortion State after state after state after state is putting the pressure on the federal government to act on this issue. Just since 2019, uh, support for Born Alive Protection Acts have skyrocketed. Back in 2015, there were only five. The next year, there were only nine. Fast forward to 2019, there were 28 states that introduced these bills. Last year, there were 33. This year, there are 37. And the, the state sessions are not over. It's very exciting to see these bills uh, come into law. Uh, Cannon Gonzalez, we're out of time, but very quickly, uh, how can people get involved? Because this requires participation of folks at the state level. That's right. We would not have passed the law in Arkansas. We would not be enacting these laws across the country without the help of concerned citizens who are listening to this program. Go to TonyPerkins.com and look for a link to sign up for action alerts. And that way, when a law like this comes before your state legislature, we can let you know. Well, I, I could have done that. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over and find out what Kane is doing and uh, all the great team we've got in state and local in our policy shop and GA shop. So check that out. And as I said many, many times, our republic was made for participants, not spectators. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Find out how you can be involved in the activity at your state level. All right, folks, don't go away. When we come back, the New York Times lamenting the fact that evangelicals are not getting the vaccine and essentially setting the stage to blame them for what? Well, we're going to talk about it next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. 
The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org slash Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. Be sure and check it out, TonyPerkins.com. All right, earlier this month, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, White Evangelical Resistance is Obstacle in Vaccination Effort. And the response from the left was almost immediate. This is now going to become a public health problem. White evangelical resistance is now an obstacle for the New York Times to the vaccination effort. As you just mentioned, millions of white evangelical adults in the U.S. do not intend to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Mistrust of science, mistrust of uh, et cetera, and also their politics. Now this is a public health issue. What can be done about that if, if, if if in their churches they're preaching against getting the vaccine? Because that means, I don't know how we get to herd immunity without 28% of the population. Well, we're not going to get there. First of all, and secondarily, we're going to have a lot of funerals in those churches where they refuse to wear masks and everything else because they believe that Jesus is going to save them and that it's just my time. But again, this is about the selfishness and where evangelicalism has gone. And it's it's really quite a shame. There are things that have been good historically about the movement, but this anti-science sentiment and the ways in which they are digging their heels in promises to be an absolute debacle for them. When you put this on top of the racism where they're calling, you know, the coronavirus, the Chinese virus, and all of these other things that, you know, their Lord and Savior Donald Trump said, then you have to add up and wonder what is really wrong with these people that they continue to go against the best interests of not just themselves, but the rest of society in order to be recalcitrant. There is nothing about this, absolutely nothing, that says anything about what Jesus Christ taught. It is a it is a movement that is stuck on itself and not on the person who is supposed to be the center of it. That was uh, MSNBC's Joy Reid and Anthea Butler. Now, uh, for those on radio, you can't see the smirk on my face. But um, that is, of course, MSNBC. MSNBC, And you say, well, so what? That's what you expect from them. I mean, 
course, I know no one with half a brain listens to them. That's true. But then there's NPR with a very similar, albeit toned down, narrative. Nationally, white evangelicals report a high degree of vaccine hesitancy. In one recent survey, just over half said they were likely to get vaccinated, compared to 64 percent of evangelicals of color. Both groups were well below the rate for non-evangelicals, 77 percent. Now, let me uh, let me read a portion of the New York Times piece with my commentary inserted. Now, let me just say, going back to Joy Reid for just a moment, I've not heard a single sermon preached about not getting a vaccine. Not heard it. Now, I've not been in every church in America, uh, but I doubt there are many sermons being preached about not getting a vaccine. But let me go to this article. White evangelical resistance is obstacle in vaccination effort. Tenets of faith and mistrust of science play a role. So does politics. Now, don't forget that line. Now, Stephanie Nana, a, an evangelical Christian in Edmond, Oklahoma, refused to get a COVID-19 vaccine because she believed it contained aborted cell tissue. Okay, now let me address that issue. This is me speaking. There are three vaccines that have been approved, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Pfizer and Moderna do not contain fetal, fetal tissue in the development or the production of those vaccines. Johnson & Johnson does. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been temporarily halted for use because of blood clotting that has occurred in some recipients of the vaccine, but there are reports that they may halt or uh, restart, uh, restart the use of that vaccine this weekend. All right, let me go on to the article here. The sheer size of the community poses, this is talking about the evangelical community, the sheer size of the community poses a major problem for the country's ability to recover from a pandemic that has resulted in the deaths of half a million Americans. And evangelical ideas and instincts have a way of spreading, even internationally. There are about 41 million white evangelical adults in America. About 45% said in late February that they would not get vaccinated against COVID-19, making them among the least likely demographic groups to do so, according to Pew Research Center. Now, this is me talking again. That's interesting that they talk about the, the grave threat that the influence of this group has, because usually the press loathes to acknowledge the influence of the evangelical community, especially around election time, when they report that the community is dying. Well, let me go on. White evangelicals present unique challenges because of their complex web of moral, medical, and political objections. The challenge is further complicated by the long-standing distrust between evangelicals and the scientific community. All right, this is me again. Well, I guess so. Those promoting science treat it as a smorgasbord where they get to pick and choose what science they want. They reject the science that shows a baby in the womb is a distinct human being with their own identity, not a blob of tissue or an unnecessary appendage of the mother. Not to mention the denial of the biological reality that they're just two genders, two sexes, male and female. All right, going on with the article. No clear data is available about vaccine hesitancy among evangelicals or other racial groups, but religious reasoning often spreads beyond white churches. Now, let me read that again, because this whole article is about how evangelicals are not getting the vaccine and vaccine hesitancy among evangelicals poses a threat to the nation. But now they're saying 
Let me read again, quote, no clear data is available about vaccine hesitancy among evangelicals or other racial groups, but religious reasoning often spreads beyond white churches. Sounds like we don't know this to be true, but we're going to say it anyway. Evangelicals are putting the nation at risk by not getting vaccinated. I mean, that's what I read in this piece. Now, I'm going to address what I think is at the heart of this matter. But before I do, I want to talk directly about the vaccine. First, is the coronavirus vaccine like a flu shot or a vaccine, say, like for the measles, which will protect you for life? Well, according to Pfizer, their test says it's good for at least six months. Beyond that, it's too soon to tell. So I just hope that people realize that this is not a one and done. This will probably be like the annual flu shot. And sometimes I get the flu shot. Sometimes I don't. Just depends. Now, I have not gotten the corona shot. It's uh, it's not because I'm against vaccines or against these shots. I had the virus last summer, and my latest blood test shows that the antibodies were in my blood. Now, if I were in a high-risk category or had someone in my home that was in a high-risk category, I would get the Pfizer or Moderna shot. I would not get the Johnson & Johnson because of ethical concerns. Now, I want to get back to the New York Times and their evangelical shaming for not getting the six-month shot. They listed several objections to the, to, that, that evangelicals had given to the vaccine, most of them outliers designed to make evangelicals look weird in the eyes of the world. I get it. I get it. We come from very different worldviews. I find their fear or phobia of the virus strange myself. I mean, think about it. We shut down our whole economy, our social infrastructure, our educational system, and so much more out of the fear of contracting the virus. I mean, I just officiated a member of my family's uh, funeral for them because they were isolated for about a year, couldn't even have contact with their immediate family, and that put them over the edge. Now, think about that. That's, That's never been done before on the scale that we just went through. And what happened? Over a half million people died from the virus. Yeah, I understand that. And we don't know yet just how many people died, but we know it's safe to say tens of thousands of others died from the isolation through various means. Fear is an indicator of spiritual uncertainty. We don't need to be reckless. That's why I suggest those in high-risk categories get an ethical dose of the COVID shot. But let me turn to what I see driving the shaming of evangelicals. Now, this is not isolated to the U.S. We've seen this happen in other countries during the pandemic. We've uh, we've tracked this at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. We've seen where churches and religious communities were blamed without evidence for the spread of the virus. Now, here in the U.S., this is just another turn of the dial in increasing the intensity of the effort to marginalize evangelicals in the eyes of the broader community. We've watched this growing hostility toward evangelicals, especially since their successful support of Donald Trump. You see, because he did more to stop and even reverse the left's anti-life, anti-family, anti-biblical morality agenda than any president in my lifetime. And he did it in large part because evangelicals supported him. You see, evangelicals have become a political problem. Note the second line of the New York Times article. Tenets of faith... And mistrust of science play a role. So does politics. Well, they're not the first to identify politics as a problem when it comes to Christians. Remember Nero, 
who blamed the fire that destroyed Rome on the Christians, using the fire for his political advantage to target this group who would not yield to him as a divine? Evangelicals are a problem for those who see the government of man above this and superior to that of God, a God that they see as little more than a product of superstition. This is about a whole lot more than a vaccine. This is about a worldview that increasingly are worlds apart. All the more reason we must not shrink back in silence or hide in the shadows when it comes to our Christian faith. Joining me now to talk more about this is David Clawson, who is the director of our Center for Biblical Worldview and Christian Ethics. David, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tony. All right, so... Your thoughts on what the New York Times is attempting to do with this uh, shaming piece of evangelicals? I think you hit it right on the nose, Tony, and we've increasingly been seeing this. Remember January 6th, the attack at the U.S. Capitol. Who was to blame? Was it a a rabid mob that got out of control? No, it was so-called Christian nationalism. Uh, During the spread of the coronavirus, uh, who who did they want to blame for it? Oh, it was the churches that were continuing to meet, even though they were wearing masks and socially distancing. I remember even Samaritan's Purse came under uh, attack for trying to to have field hospitals in in, uh, Central Park in New York. And so we've seen it over the last year, but like you said, with Nero... This has been going on for a very long time uh, that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, uh, are, are the boogeyman and the left sees them as a problem. So I think your analysis right there is right on. And we need to realize what's going on. They are seeking to shame us and silence us and drive us from the public square. And, and I want to have been very clear about this. I mean, I'm, I think if you are in a category where you're at risk, I think you should get one of the ethical uh, shots. Um, I'm not against the science, I, I, but I, I don't think we should be forced to get it. I don't think that we should be shamed into getting it. I think we should make those decisions ourselves. Now, I want to go back to the New York Times piece because there was actually a thoughtful statement in here uh, from the professor, uh, professor of sociology and director of the religion and public life at Rice University, uh, Elaine Uckland. She said, there has been a sea change over the past century in how evangelical Christians see science, a change rooted largely in the debates over evolution and the secularization of the academy. Uh, There are two parts to the problem. She said, the scientific community has not been as friendly toward evangelicals, and the religious community has not encouraged followers to pursue careers in science. I mean, we do see the selective use of science, which makes those who, who see truth believers as transcendent truth is not doesn't change with the day of the week or whoever is in public office i mean truth is truth but we see those that advocate for science on one hand dismiss the science on another no, and, and that's why an argument like that, Tony, just seems to have so much hypocrisy in it. Because especially those who I think today, today's Earth Day, and people were talking about climate change and global warming. That was the big focus of the White House today. But again, this is the same White House through executive orders and public statements uh, that is radically pro-abortion, that doesn't recognize the personhood of the unborn. Uh, an administration that has put out executive orders uh, that don't recognize the, the biological right. sex of male and female. And so when you're so selective in the, the reading of the science, well, 
it's just hypocritical and it doesn't engender very much trust amongst people like you and I. Especially when you use, that's a good example that you use on global warming, climate change, and they want to change the terms to make it more palatable. But the fact that the science here, even John Kerry acknowledging that, you know, if we eliminate our emissions completely, we can't change, we can't turn the dial. We can't move the needle on this. The fact is the the, the problem is so big. And, and I'm not denying that the fact that there is the, the earth atmosphere climate is constantly changing, sometimes hot, sometimes cold. It changes. That's that's it's done that throughout history. But we can never hold them accountable for the claims that if we do this, you know, we can address global warming because you can never measure it. It's too big of a problem. And, it, and it's it's so removed. But the issue of human life, whether or not the baby in a womb is a child and whether or not you fund or force abortion through the funding of tax dollars, that is very measurable. Yeah, no, it's very measurable. And uh, again, as Christians, we believe that all truth is God's truth. And so, yeah, the scripture tells us about the person of the unborn, but science is very clear. I think you can detect a heartbeat within two weeks. And so that, that selective reading of science, again, it just, all that does is engender suspicion because it's just rank hypocrisy. How, we're almost out of time here, David, but we are worldviews apart. Yes. How do we? Well, I think we're going to we're, we're just about out of time, but you've got resources available. Where can people find out how we navigate this separation of worldviews? Yeah, we have a lot of uh, worldview resources here at Family Research Council and all these, Tony, are at FRC.org slash worldview. All right. David Clawson, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. And folks, I encourage you to take advantage of those resources because, look, the worldviews are worlds apart. And we've got to live in this world. We've got to communicate our worldview and not shrink back from it. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything that you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.